to another episode of the podcast Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You can find Unbecoming on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Send your questions, comments, suggestions for the podcast to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. I invite you to support the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Today's episode begins a series of episodes in which we examine evangelicalism by way of the rubric cult. Just to give a warning, we'll be talking about things that some listeners may find unsettling, though I confess I don't think there'll be much unsettling in this episode, since it's largely designed as a backdrop for what's to come. While I think examining evangelicalism is very helpful, my own experience is that it brings back some memories that are sweet and wonderful, and other memories that are somewhat difficult and disquieting. Of course, I can imagine that there are at least two kinds of listeners right now. One is the kind of listener who would go, of course evangelicalism is a cult, isn't that obvious? But I can easily imagine listeners thinking, there's no way that evangelicalism could count as a cult. Those, of course, are the two basic ends of the spectrum. So it's likely that many listeners will find themselves somewhere in the midst of that. I hope that wherever you find yourself, you'll benefit from thinking about evangelicalism. As far as I can tell, there isn't any account of evangelicalism, certainly not from someone who has been an insider that examines it from the perspective of a cult. My training in Nietzsche and Foucault, uh, not to mention things like work in feminism and queer theory, has been very useful for getting insight into how the evangelical machine works. But even more useful is my work in hermeneutics, uh, the art of interpretation. For a long time, I realized that evangelicalism has some cultish aspects though my thought on the matter has become clearer as I've examined the ways in which evangelicals interpret the Bible, how they use the Bible, how the Bible frames their experience, but it's a very specific way of interpreting the Bible. You can probably imagine that my current situation, in which I do not work for an evangelical institution, gives me a great advantage. Alas, one can't really write about the cultish aspects of evangelicalism from the inside. They'll shut you down. It's interesting to me that evangelicals have long had an interest in cults, largely in terms of defining and denouncing them. One can't help but think that there's a kind of worry that evangelicalism itself might be interpreted as a cult. Evangelicals tend to maintain that their way of being Christian is the definitive expression of true Christianity. The classic textbook in the world of evangelicalism on cults is a book by Walter Martin called The Kingdom of the Cults. It is a massive tome on groups like, well, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Scientology, etc. Martin's criterion for deciding what counts as a cult is its divergence from what the Bible teaches. So that would be something like, you know, Mormons teach X, but the Bible teaches Y. Of course, Martin also includes a chapter on Islam, which most reputable scholars consider to be a different religion. 
Such a mistake is, alas, pretty basic, and it's probably enough reason for you to wonder whether Martin's book should be taken very seriously. Obviously, determining what it is that the Bible actually teaches is already a major problem. There is the evangelical version, of course, but the world of Christianity, all of which is connected to the Bible in one way or another, is filled with multiple interpretations. So even the seemingly innocent question, what does the Bible teach in this particular passage, often has different, even incompatible answers. Contrary to the beliefs of many evangelicals, the Bible is not self-interpreting. Indeed, one of the most basic beliefs of evangelicalism is that anyone can read the Bible and understand it. In contrast, for many centuries, the Roman Catholic Church insisted that the layperson should not read the Bible by himself or herself. That's changed in more recent years, but I have to say, I lean toward the Catholic position on this topic. The Bible is filled with complex stories that can be read on many different levels. Evangelicals claim that they interpret the Bible literally, but you should be cautious about accepting this claim at face value. In other words, you shouldn't take the evangelical claim to read the Bible literally, literally. I've long pointed out that every Christian group or denomination picks and chooses which scriptures they take to be important. Put another way, various Christian groups place great emphasis on particular passages in the Bible and virtually ignore others. In the episode on the different ways in which Jesus seems to recognize that someone has believed in him, I pointed out that evangelicals are very keen on the born-again metaphor, but largely ignore many of the other things that Jesus thinks constitute faith. Indeed, a quick summary of the difference between evangelicalism and the mainline denominations might go like this. Evangelical sermons tend to focus on the letters of Paul. Mainline sermons usually focus on the gospel reading for the week. The result is that if you're Episcopalian or Lutheran or Methodist, you hear a whole lot more about what Jesus has to say than if you attend an evangelical church. There's also a basic point about Christian history of which few people know about. I had the privilege of studying the Church Fathers, which is to say the early Christian theologians, with Sister Agnes Cunningham at St. Mary of the Lake Seminary. Sister Agnes is one of the loveliest people I've ever met. It was with her that I learned that early Christian theologians had four different rubrics or senses of what Scripture means. They did indeed have a literal sense. But they also thought that scripture was such a rich text that it needed three additional senses of interpretation. So the second way of reading the text is allegorical, in which the figurative meaning of the text becomes the focus. The third way of reading is tropological, or for the moral sense, something like the moral of a story, what the story is designed to teach. And lastly, there is the anagogical or mystical sense of the text, what the text teaches about fundamental truth, both earthly and heavenly. Let me provide you a quick example. The Church Father Augustine interpreted the first account of creation, that's the one found in Genesis 1, allegorically. But he interpreted the second account, that's the one found in Genesis 2, literally. By the way, you might not have realized that there are two creation accounts in Genesis, but there are, and they're quite different.
An earlier church father, Origen, interpret both of these accounts allegorically. In other words, reading the Bible for its non-literal sense has been part of the Christian tradition from the beginning. One can certainly insist that a little reading is the only valid one, but such a claim is strongly at odds with the tradition of reading biblical texts. Now, what is a cult? As you can imagine, there isn't anything remotely like a standard definition. Most Christian theologians deem, for instance, the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons to be cults theologically, though Mormons are increasingly seen as part of the Christian tradition. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the future. Put simply, while there's room in Christianity for differences in beliefs, such groups are seen as too far beyond the boundaries of what could count as Christianity. Yet that's merely a doctrinal definition. True, I'll be arguing that evangelicals seriously distort the message of Jesus. Yet cults have many other aspects relating to practices and authority. The Oxford English Dictionary provides the following definition of a cult. A relatively small group of people having especially religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister or as exercising excessive control over members. Each of these aspects is instructive. While evangelicals might seem to be a large group, it's important to keep in mind the qualifier relatively. Christianity includes a vast array of Protestant denominations, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, as well, of course, as Evangelicalism and Pentecostalism. As it turns out, in that grouping, Evangelicalism and Pentecostalism are relative newcomers to the table and have had some difficulties being taken seriously. As I pointed out, starting out with the name Fundamentalist didn't exactly help things. As a relative newcomer to the Christian table, Evangelicalism has always taken a back seat to the traditional branches of Christianity. Indeed, the story of evangelicals could easily be told in terms of its acceptance by the wider culture. Back in the very dark days of fundamentalism, fundamentalists generally tried to disengage from culture, which they denounced as secular and sometimes satanic. Then, of course, evangelicalism became more mainstream, with Jimmy Carter being the first evangelical president of the United States, though Carter was greatly out of step with most evangelicals and wasn't liked by them. Of course, the evangelist Billy Graham made evangelical beliefs widely known and gave them important recognition. You may know that Graham was close to many American presidents. Now, what about these other aspects of this dictionary definition? Strange sinister, excessive control. In the early aughts, I started giving talks on evangelicalism and fundamentalism at places like the Center for Religious Inquiry in New York City and various Episcopal, that is to say, mainline churches across the country. One thing became immediately clear. While the mainline folks with whom I met were not exactly sure what to make of evangelicalism, their views about evangelicalism were almost completely negative. I was sitting in the office of Rabbi Lenny Schoolman, head of the Center for Religious Inquiry at St. Bart's Episcopal Church in New York City. Yes, a Jewish rabbi working at a Christian church. 
And we were talking about me doing a course on the topic of evangelicals. When an editor of the main press for Episcopalians, Seabury Press, asked me if I read a book on evangelicals. To be honest, he and most Episcopalians had little idea of exactly who evangelicals were and what they believed. At the time, I viewed those speaking gigs as somewhat out of my usual wheelhouse of philosophy, so I eventually told him that I should stick with publishing philosophy. But what really caught my attention was Lenny's assistant. When Lenny introduced us, he mentioned that I was giving talk, talks on evangelicals, to which the assistant's only response was, scary people, as he ran out the door. I was living in New York City at that point, and it had become apparent to me that most New Yorkers thought of evangelicals as crazy people, not as dangerous as suicide bombers, but still pretty weird. At the time, I was more amused by the assistant's reaction than surprised. On the other hand, it's not hard to see that, viewed from the outside, evangelicals are probably pretty scary to those who do not share their outlook. But my point here is that, from the inside, evangelicalism has some red flags. My concern with evangelicalism is that I believe it teaches certain things that are harmful. Many of us, yes, I'm including myself here, were born into the evangelical world and grew up with its concepts. My worry is that we often simply accept certain ideas without much consideration. Let me be clear here. When people say, we're not raising our children with religion, we're allowing them to figure it out on our own, that sounds so wonderfully open-minded and freeing. But it's important to realize that there isn't anything like a default way of raising children. We've already talked about the fact that starting with the belief that there isn't a God isn't any more neutral than starting with a belief that there is a God. There isn't any neutrality on this. You can start with one belief or the other and stick with it, but neither are neutral. However, there are different parenting styles, some of which are going to allow children a good deal of choice in terms of what they eventually come to believe, and others in which there aren't, well, that many choices. I can't count the number of students I've taught who said, my parents made it clear that they would pay for me to attend an evangelical college, but if I wanted to go to secular school, I'd be on my own. Considering just how much higher education costs, such a choice really isn't much of a choice in any practical sense. Exactly when a child might reach an age at which religious belief might start to be questioned varies greatly, of course, though irrational abilities are still being developed in our teens and 20s. My own experience of teaching thousands of college students, most of whom had been taught evangelical beliefs before they could walk or talk, is that college is often the time when students start coming to terms with the things they've been taught, whether those things concern religion or politics or vast array of other things. But it's important to see that this question is not simply an intellectual exercise. How we see the world has enormous consequences for our actions. One of the complications in even talking about all this is the following feature. Human beings have, in effect, two modes of thinking or making sense of the world. We've already talked about the difference between intuitive beliefs and those we arrive at through precise reasoning. But this distinction is important once we recognize that our judgments regarding what we value are often made at the intuitive level. To be sure, in many cases, we rethink those judgments from the point of view of the neocortex. But who we are 
and how we function is deeply due to these intuitive beliefs. Moreover, such beliefs can be held so tightly, or to put it another way, appear so obviously true that one doesn't even stop to ask, could one question this? I've already given the example of me going off to Europe for summer and having the genuine sense that the belief America is the greatest country in the world was simply wrong. It wasn't that I had discovered that other countries had, had, had great things to offer. It was that I also came to realize that even the concept greatest country in the world was a nonsensical concept. What could that possibly be? There was a comedian, David Letterman, maybe some of you remember him, who had a running gag on his show about hole-in-the-wall restaurants that advertised the world's best coffee. The show was done in New York, and of course there are a lot of little restaurants that have such things on the side of the building. Coffee, of course, is a much simpler kind of thing than a country, but I don't see how anyone could think some particular version of coffee is going to be the best. But things become even more complicated once we realize that our emotions are a way of knowing and relating to the world at a much deeper level than rationality. While we can discuss various beliefs in the abstract, believing or not believing them may not be fully within our rational control. One of the chinks in the armor of rationality was attacked by the Scottish philosopher David Hume, who claimed that the basis of our moral judgments is our sentiments. On Hume's view, we come to certain ideas regarding right and wrong due to our emotions. Once we've done that, we then turn to ways to justify our moral beliefs. But notice, of course, what comes first, belief. It's only at the point that anyone asks us to justify our beliefs or our actions that we are forced to come up with some rationale for this. Consider how Howard Margolis puts this. Given the judgments themselves produced by the non-conscious cognitive machinery in the brain, sometimes correctly, sometimes not so, human beings produce rationales they believe account for their judgments. But the rationales on this argument are only ex-post rationalizations. The main difference here is between seeing that, a kind of intuitive knowing made unconsciously, and reasoning that, which is providing justification for one's views. If Margolis is correct, then our moral decisions aren't decisions in a strong sense. We intuitively conclude that X is good or that it's bad, and then we try to explain why our decisions make sense. Let's put all of this in different terms. To what extent do we make political decisions rationally? It should be clear that even asking the question is problematic, for our rational judgments are readily available to us to inspect, whereas our intuitive judgments are relatively opaque to us. Consider how we make decisions as to which candidate to support in an upcoming election. We certainly could sit down with the party on the candidate's platforms and come to a reasoned decision. However, the main problem with this view is that political views are very difficult to unseat, precisely because so much of our judgment is based on emotion and intuition. I don't mean to suggest that this is either good or that it's bad. Instead, it's simply how human beings operate. Trump supporters and Trump despisers are unlikely to have anything like a rational debate on Trump. Supporters see him as a strong leader who's not afraid to buck the system. 
evangelicals have made it clear that they want Trump to be president, largely because they feel he's on their side. Much more important is to have someone in the White House who is fighting for conservative causes. Similarly, those who find Trump to be a total liar, adulterer, and con man are not simply basing their judgment of him on a rational argument. Most of us have been trained to spot people who lie, and we generally don't want to do anything with habitual liars. To be sure, one can argue that such people cannot be trusted, a rational argument. Would we be lying to ourselves if we were to think our judgments regarding Trump, one way or the other, are purely rational rather than heavily intuitive and emotional? While we can change our intuitions, that's a considerable challenge. We normally use our intuitions to confirm our reasoning. In order to change our intuitions, we usually need a rather strong piece or even set of evidence. The other point that we need to consider here is that moral judgments like political judgments, religious judgments, are highly social in nature. We never really make them on our own in isolation from others. If anything, the problem might be that, as ultra-social creatures, we are very heavily influenced by those around us. In effect, the basic distinction comes down to two different kinds of cognition, intuition and reason. The difference is seeing that versus reasoning why, and they're two very different processes. In the first, we just know that something is true. Intuition functions almost automatically, and it needs to function that way because it is in constant use. In fact, intuition is so basic to our getting around in the world that we are often unaware of it even operating in the background. Think about all the things you've learned to do so well that you don't even have to think about doing them. Most of us, for instance, have had the experience of driving home and suddenly realizing that we did it almost on autopilot. We don't even remember driving home. <laughs> We're not talking about the car's autopilot, by the way. We're talking about our autopilot. Indeed, we are engaged in so many things at once that we often have only a minimal awareness of these things. Most of it happens beneath the surface. But here we need to introduce a name and a legacy that's still with us. The name, of course, is Plato. And it was Plato who thought that nothing good could ever come from listening to our emotions. Thus, Plato gives us the memorable metaphor of the chariot and two winged horses. One horse is white and wishes to ascend to the skies. The other horse is black and keeps trying to pull back to the earth. It's striking when we realize that over two millennia ago, there was already this distinction in which white is good and black is bad. The charioteer, the person who's supposed to be driving the chariot, is reason, whereas the white horse needs very little encouragement or direction. The black horse is stubborn and often refuses to budge. For Plato, the white horse represents spiritedness, or even simply spirit. In contrast, the other horse represents our appetites, which can be defined in terms of those things that we desire, but also in terms of our emotions. What we now realize is that this metaphor simply gets things wrong in significant ways. The idea that reason could be in control of things is, of course, a completely rationalistic fantasy. Put another way, Plato thought that we ended up doing the wrong things. These could be morally wrong or they could be simply imprudent because of our emotions. Well, that is no doubt true some of the time. 
What we realize today is that most of the things we care about are more deeply related to our emotions than to our reason. When people say they feel X is the right thing to do, they are revealing just how much our decisions are connected to our emotions. Philosophy professors encourage their students to use locutions like, I believe, since they want to emphasize that our views are based on reason. But I feel is probably a better and in many cases truer description of how we come to and hold our views. That point is made elegantly by the title of Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary, which is about the divided brain. I've mentioned this book before in a previous podcast. On McGilchrist's take, the left brain sees things as a series. The right brain sees things as a gestalt, in other words, an entire entity. Whereas the left brain is driven by logic, categorizing and avoidance of paradox, the right brain sees the world as a whole. It does not necessarily have a problem with the messy aspects of human experience that do not fit together easily. The right brain, to put it another way, is perfectly happy with paradox. McGilchrist shows us that although the right part of the brain is ultimately in control, we in the modern Western world have privileged the left brain and become, at least on his view, and I think he's right, considerably shallower. Interestingly, it's the right brain that focuses on whatever is new or different. The left brain works with the material the right brain has already established. In a nutshell, the neuroscientific analysis shows that we are beings who have definite beliefs, likes, dislikes, that cannot be fully accounted for by way of the left brain. Put even more strongly, the more important our beliefs are to us, the less able we are to defend them. The reason is that most of our basic beliefs come about by intuition. While we can use the left brain to analyze our beliefs, the left brain never really understands the right brain. So there are definitely limits to our own ability to understand ourselves. Now it's in this context that we can start to talk about evangelicalism as being a cult. But now we come to a slightly different problem in the analysis. I suspect everyone has a ready idea of what counts as a cult. Almost by definition, cults are weird. Probably the best-known cult is that of Jim Jones and the People's Temple. You probably know that the cult ended in people drinking Flavor-Aid with cyanide, which is where the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. But Jones wasn't just some guy who decided to set up a cult one day. He was first ordained by the Assemblies of God, which was recognized as a full, fully Christian denomination. Then he was ordained by the Disciples of Christ, again, another recognized Christian denomination. It's what later happens that marks Jones as a cult leader. Another example that you may know is from the Netflix series Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. The premise of the show is that Kimmy had been kidnapped along with other young women, and they are trapped in an underground bunker with a crazed leader who keeps talking about the end of the world. While the details are hazy, it's clear that the writers are working with something like Christian themes. The show's opening scenes show a SWAT team descending into the bunker and freeing everyone. 
In various episodes, there are flashbacks to different scenes in the bunker, all of which confirm that the leader truly is crazy, and the young women just simply don't know what to do. But the important point here is this. You hardly need anyone to tell you this is a cult. Everything about it screams cult. The young women are dressed in very conservative clothes that seem a bit Amish. Another Netflix series is called Sweet, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. It's about a splinter group of Mormons who still practice polygamy. Again, you don't have to watch it for more than a few minutes before you get to the basic conclusion, yeah, this seems like a cult. However, these examples are the easy ones. Where it becomes more difficult is when people involved seem normal enough. One of the things I discovered going to academic conferences is that people assumed quite a lot of things about me given that my name tag listed in an evangelical college. What happened repeatedly was that I would get to know people who taught at non-evangelical or secular schools, and they would be surprised that I was normal. Occasionally, people would even make roundabout comments to that effect, though mostly you could see it in their eyes, people having difficulty with me being ostensibly normal when they clearly expected me to be weird. But that point should make it clear that something doesn't have to be extremely weird to be a cult. For those of you who've already listened to the episode on the tech cults of Silicon Valley, you've already been introduced to cultish entities like Facebook, Google, and all the startups hoping to get bought up by Facebook and Google. That episode focused on the book by Carolyn Chen titled Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. Chen provides an extremely thorough analysis of how these companies operate, and it leads her to make the following observation. The problem is that tech companies increasingly operate like the most extreme of religious organizations, cults. They channel the energy of their employees inward and then cut them off from things outside. As I've discussed, tech companies do this by hoarding so much of their employees' time, energy, and passions that they have nothing left for anything else. And they provide for so many of their employees' needs that tech workers can do without the public. Now, if you listen to that episode, you were probably shocked to hear someone claiming that tech companies operate like cults. But I hope you can see her point. These companies demand something like loyalty or obedience or compliance. Well, most of them think, well, it'd be nice to have free food available and all those comfy chairs and all that kind of neat stuff. It's not quite as easy to see this as what it is, namely a form of control. The main reason for having food available, as Chen discovers, is that employers don't want their highly paid employees out wasting their time getting something to eat. Instead, those employees can eat something right there and then get back to work. All of this leads Chen to write, they don't get rid of religious rites, rituals, and devotions. They just swap them for the rituals, rites, and devotions of another religion, the religion of work. I think that's a really elegant statement of what's going on. You have to admit that on the one level, it's it's extraordinarily clever. Get employees to be more productive and increase the bottom line by making work into something that's like a religion. The cost, of course, is tremendous. Most of us are rightly skeptical about people giving up their lives to a religious cult. 
One reason is because most of us think that there's no there there. In other words, the cult is about something phony. Often the leader is some kind of charismatic huckster. But if Chen's analysis is right, there are thousands of people who are doing something eerily similar in the world of work. One of the people she talks to says that while people crave spirituality, they're not finding their needs met by religion. Interestingly enough, that person named Jim is part of a religious community in the traditional sense of the term religion, but he thinks that the workplace can actually become the spiritual center of our lives. Yes, you heard that correctly. I'm not making that up. Thus, Chen isn't being hyperbolic when she says that many tech companies either already are cults or else are moving toward becoming cults. You might think, well, if people can find meaning in the work, then more power to them. But what exactly is this meaning? If work gives people a sense of purpose, what is this purpose and what are the, its ultimate ends? It's hard to avoid the fact that the meaning that they're finding is ultimately about enriching the CEOs and shareholders of these companies. I hope we're now in a better position to ask the cultish question about evangelicalism. What I've tried to show is that cults can be found anywhere. I hope I've also made it clear that I think human beings are fundamentally religious creatures. As far as I can see, that's never going to change. I just finished reading a book by Pascal Boer called Religion Explained, The Evolutionary Origins of Religions, Religious Thought, which it basically attempts to show why religion came about and then make it clear that, well, today we're beyond all of that. It's an extremely patronizing book. But the thing is, is that Boyer's wrong. And I don't think it's helpful to pretend that religion is just some feature of human existence that could be shed like a snake's skin. That's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to be human. In that same tech episode, I also quoted David Foster Wallace. Here's what he says. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. To make sense of what Wallace is saying, consider that the first definition given by the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary of Worship, is the condition in a person of deserving or being held in esteem or repute. That definition is listed as obsolete, but it does establish that worship relates to worth. We worship that which we think is worthy of our worship. It's helpful to mention that a later definition of worship is veneration similar to that paid to a deity. So in other words, it's quite possible to think about worship in a different sense. That definition is key to both Wallace's statement that everyone worships something and Claim's statement that in Silicon Valley, people worship work. Now at this point, I want to turn very briefly to probably the foremost academic who has studied religious cults and also brainwashing techniques used by the Maoists in the 1960s, Robert J. Lifton. His early book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, subtitled A Study of Brainwashing in China, 
contained a chapter titled Ideological Totalism, The Eight Deadly Sins. That chapter came to take on the status not merely of describing how cults function. Many deprogrammers used it to help cult members escape. While there's nothing like a definitive conception of cult, and there never has been, Lifton came up with a list of eight criteria that I think is very helpful. Lifton uses the term ideological totalism to describe an ideology that is totally self-contained and self-justified. Such a view might be a political one. Communism is often mentioned in this regard, but it could be many other things, too. In either case, and here I'm quoting from him, at the center of this self-justification is their assumption of omniscience, their conviction that reality is their exclusive possession. Such an assumption is so central to evangelicals that it is almost never questioned. One may not know exactly why all the other Christian groups got it wrong, but evangelicals are convinced that they got it right. Now, to be sure, no ideology can be utterly total. There are always questions for which it has no specific answer. Though many evangelicals assume that such answers are readily available if one looks hard enough, or that if the Bible doesn't say that it's okay, then it's not. The Bible is often taken to be something like a textbook from which you can learn the answers to most everything. Though, of course, it's the Bible as interpreted by evangelicals. Thus, the most basic form of totalism among evangelicals is that their ideology, if you want a more neutral term than how about belief system or worldview, is presented as the one true gospel, the only correct interpretation of Christianity. Now, in episodes to come, we will look at each of these eight criteria in depth. But I think it's helpful to list these criteria now and provide a brief explanation that will give you an idea of what's coming up in the podcast. The first of these criteria is what he calls milieu control, the attempt to control human communication. In the episode on Foucault, we talked about the lecture that Foucault gives on giving a lecture, in which he talks about what you can and you can't say when you give a lecture. That's an important part of milieu control. But note that cults often want to control what you, on your own time, in the privacy of your own home, can think. You might think that this is kind of an overreach, but the reality is that all of our thoughts are constrained in many different kinds of ways. The second criterion is what he calls mystical manipulation, in which a group claims to have the truth about ultimate reality. The reason for the term mystical here is that the ultimate reality is not anything anyone could figure out for herself. Instead, it's mysterious, which means that only the group's leaders or theorists or theologians truly understand. From my own experience inside such systems, there's usually a sense that certain people are in the know, and then the rest of us simply need to follow. The third criterion is the demand for purity. I mentioned that Netflix series, Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey, and that religious group is clearly an example of the quest for purity. But evangelicals have also made purity a goal, particularly in the form of sexual chastity. 
However, if we were to assume that purity is only about sex, we would miss quite a bit. The whole fundamentalist desire to be separate from the world was all about avoiding the polluting influences of politics, Hollywood, and everything that gets labeled worldly. Aspect four, the third, sorry, the fourth criterion, is the cult of confession. While this gets worked out in different ways, the basic idea is that of confessing one's sins or shortcomings to those in the group. As Lifton puts it, private ownership of the mind and its products becomes highly immoral. Confession is a way of leveling the playing field, and it gives the group a sense of oneness. But of course, confession is also a way of keeping things secret. Lifton calls the fifth characteristic the sacred science. Cults normally put forth a way of being in accord with some particular moral vision, usually a very narrow conception of what makes for a good life or a good person. Because what's at issue is sacred, it can't really be questioned. In fact, even trying to figure out the logic at work is strongly discouraged. Basically, the idea is, it's sacred. Who are you? to question it. Loading the language is the sixth aspect. All groups operate with certain terminology. I mentioned the term liberal. Growing up, I was never sure what liberal actually was, but I was sure it was bad. But part of this aspect of language is that some groups tend to develop very particular vocabularies that then become markers of one's membership. There are certain ways of talking that supposedly carry great weight. I can remember, for instance, the way the word spiritual is used by some. The term is evocative of what one is supposed to be. It's a term that everyone uses, but nobody really knows what it means. But using such terminology is fully expected, and it's never really acceptable to ask what it means. If you have to ask, then clearly... You don't belong there because you don't understand. And that point neatly dovetails with the seventh aspect, doctrine over person. In a cult-like setting, there are usually certain expectations of who one should become. Put another way, your own personal experience doesn't really much matter. Doctrine is always more important than the individuals involved. There's always the pressure to conform oneself to the group's doctrine and to prove one's sincerity, since there is always the sneaking suspicion that you might not be good enough or not, might not be conforming enough to the group expectations. Finally, there's what Lifton calls the dispensing of existence. This is a strange way of putting it, so let me quote him. Existence come to depend upon creed. I believe, therefore I am. Upon submission, I obey, therefore I am. And beyond these, upon a sense of total merger with the ideological movement. Now, most of these aspects concern the cult or the group itself. But Lifton points out that how we get involved exactly in such a group is dependent upon personal factors. He says, this is a, a, a very helpful quote, I think, the degree to which one embraces totalism depends greatly upon factors in one's personal history. Early lack of trust, 
extreme environmental chaos, total dom dominion by a p parent or parent representative, intolerable burdens of guilt, and severe crises of identity. It shouldn't be difficult to see that one's own personal life might make one more likely to find something like salvation in such a group, which raises a basic and troubling question. How does one free oneself from the grip of something that is truly harmful but all-encompassing? It would seem like the more messed up you are, the more likely you are to find yourself attracted to such a group. So how does one get well enough to see clearly? Those are the aspects and questions we'll be considering in the upcoming episodes. I want to mention once more that you are welcome to contact the podcast with questions or maybe with examples of things you've experienced. The address is, once again, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for putting up with my post-COVID voice, which also explains why there was no episode last week. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.